0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Venture Brothers. A brand new season of the critically acclaimed animated series The Venture Brothers is almost here. Featuring Hank, Dean, Rusty, Brock, The Monarch, Dr. Mrs. The Monarch, 21 OSI, The Guild of Calamitous Intent, Billy Quizboy, Pete White, and several other characters you made your own costumes for. Watch Team Venture attempt to save their frozen butts from the icy chill of organized villainy. Laugh along as America's favorite family of super scientists collides with the inescapable agents of their own downfall. Learn along with the boys on brand new adventures like college, jobs, dating, and other skills you can't learn in your sleep. Created and directed by Jackson Public, written and executive produced by Public and Doc Hammer. The Venture Brothers, new episode Sunday at midnight on Adult Swim. Go Team Venture.
1: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand
0: up and walk. Now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, my number one boy. It's Andy Greenwald! Too soon! Man. Uh, Andy, we are here to talk about the finale of Succession, season one, and we're also going to be talking with the creator of the show, Jesse Armstrong, in a little bit. So, so exciting. Really exciting. Let's just jump right into it, man. We gave this show the belt last week. Uh, it retained that that <laughs> championship with its finale. I wanted to just say off t- off the top, you know, we did this um, Best TV Episodes of, of the Century package last week. Yeah. So obviously I've Congrats been thinking a lot about... Uh, pilots and finales and bottle episodes and all the different kinds of ways in which, you know, these inflection points we typically look for for a season. And I think that there was a lot of pressure on Succession as people started getting more and more into it after the first few episodes, and it got a lot of fans that caught up with it after those few episodes and word of mouth started spreading. And so I think that there was a little bit of pressure, even if it was already done, obviously— to see where the show could go and whether the show could expand, would it contract, would anything, what would be the major turning point? And I have to say that I don't really remember a finale that felt so final and also opened up a world of possibilities like this. Um, it doesn't do something like Lost where it's like there's a hatch. You know, there's not another company that we get introduced mm-hmm. to. They didn't inter- introduce some huge twist. It just kind of shows the long-term business-as-usual uh rat fucking that goes on in that company and in that family. And I couldn't help but think of the not like Carrie Bradshaw. I couldn't help but think of the the softball game in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the boy that uh Logan Roy um they bring on to come play in the softball game and then they pay off to forget about it.
1: Well, because Roman offered him a million dollars.
0: Yes. And um I I thought about like the way that Something that's good can also be absolutely toxic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it really came through with the Kendall storyline, uh, which is obviously the main sort of thrust, unless you want to talk about Connor Roy 2020.
1: <laughs> Alan Ruck has his Hall of Fame reel <laughs> now when it's time for Cooperstown, and God bless him for that. Um, here we go. This is, this is what I have to say. Here we go. Um, this is a TV show that is built for 2018 and beyond. This is a TV show that is built for the short term and the long term. Episodes stood on their own. There were, there were certainly high points within the episodic writing. This is a season, as you said, that could stand on its own. You could walk away after the end of this, but you don't have to. It is a remarkable, remarkable success story. And I'm ready now to turn the page on making the argue, making the case that you know it was a slow starter, that it built after three, four, five episodes. It found its
0: voice. Enough yeah. of that.
1: This is a show that is it is completely rare these days. I, it didn't used to be rare, but it is rare at this moment in time in television for its um curve to mirror Kendall's heart rate after a late night visit with Stewie. Mm-hmm. It goes up and up and up and up. And I think I you know I still think Austerlitz was maybe the best episode of the season, but I'm not so sure after this finale. The the di- the curve of this season was up and up and triumphant and I am my jaw's on the floor after this episode. This was a phenomenal, phenomenal episode of television. And I want to talk about the heartbreak of the Kendall scene. I want to talk about the hilarity of Connor. I want to talk <laughs> you went about to both so, f- failed rocket launches. That's where <laughs> I want to start. <laughs> because he, he, here's what I, I've been thinking a lot about. You you, and the rest of the crew at The Ringer put together this absolutely spectacular package of the best episodes of the, of the century. I'm sure um, you know, people will check it out last week, they'll continue to check it out. I've obviously been thinking a lot about television, too, in the process of trying to make it. Um, And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how serialized television is a cumulative medium. It's additive. Every episode gives you the chance to build on top of what was laid down before. Um, And what's always been thrilling to me about this is that it is a cumulative medium for the audience, for the creators and writers, for the actors who are learning more and more and having more of a base to build on over the course of one season mm-hmm. or multiple yeah, seasons. Yeah, we talk
0: about how shows teach us how to watch them all the time. Yes, yeah. and
1: I think that the goal, when everything clicks, the goal is when um, circumstances are surprising or even shocking, but the behavior and the reactions of characters feels inevitable. That's not the same as it being predictable. What it means is the choices that are made Feels so true and baked in because of everything, all the track that's been laid down before. Yeah. Can I jump and, in
0: there for just a second, actually? Sure. Yeah. Um, because I think that the b- best example of what you're talking about is that um, you don't have to be a television expert or watch a ton of dramatic TV necessarily, but anyone who's ever known anyone who has addiction problems or has struggled with addiction problems uh-huh. themselves has known that the Kendall moment has been coming ever since he walked into that bar in New Mexico. Yeah. Ever since he asked for a non-alcoholic beer and they didn't have one, mm-hmm. this is what was en- going to be the end result of mm-hmm. this season, and it was really just a matter of how bad was the collateral damage is going to be, and it actually turned out to be as bad as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about hitting bottom, he literally hit the bottom of a pond, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so left someone there, yeah, and so that was to see the patience and to see them play that both for. Frankly laughs at certain times, like in Prague. I think that there was a lot of comedy to be derived mm-hmm. from it. Cocaine is funny. Like when you when you film it and do it in certain ways, like in, in television, it's like a funny, it triggers funny moments in shows and in mm-hmm. movies. It's also just absolutely destroyed. It's destructive. It it will kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it can devastate everything around you. Um and to watch that. Arc down mm-hmm. was exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I I want to um, specifically I, I, I wanted to talk about there's a micro moment and a macro moment. I think you've you've correctly identified the macro of this um, the the slow slow devastation of Kendall. And to your point about how the drugs work, one of the one of the many brilliant choices made in the course of the storytelling was that he didn't flame out or bottom out every time he did a line or every time he. Up to you know, re-upped his tumbler of whatever the whiskey was that they were drinking. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. He had a fun time, and then he had a bad time, and then he had an okay time, and mostly he was still the same guy, but fraying at the edges, and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out. The moment I was, I was building to um, in the micro in this episode was Roman in the bathroom with the rocket launch. Um, he watches it mm-hmm. in silence. He reacts in silence. He washes his hands thoroughly, and sort of rubs his eyes and exits the bathroom. And in that moment, I just felt complete zen with the universe and the universe of storytelling and television. Because what I felt in that moment was the complete synchronicity of a writing room, of a creator, of a director, mm-hmm. of a set designer, crucially of an actor and of an editor. There obviously was conversation about how to play all those moments, but it didn't feel like there was any conversation. It didn't feel like there needed to be any Conversation because everyone knew who this guy was and what to do with it. Um, I love moments like that. But the Kendall story, of course, is the story of the season, and it played out in so many astonishing ways um, because it was a slow motion car crash, except for the actual car crash, um, because it was a series of terrible decisions, um, because it felt both shocking and inevitable. And throughout it all, Jeremy Strong's performance is steady, precise, astonishing, and the direction. Captures him in a way that the show intends to capture him, which is to say, he is a boy.
0: Oh yeah, he is a the way he ran away from the car crash. The way he ran away from that car accident is like the way a child runs, just like kind of jogging with his arms moving really fast. You know, he may think that maybe that's supposed to be some sort of like stealth shit, yeah, or some sort of you know twenty second century. physical trainer showed him how to do it that way. But it reminded me, I I know that Dustin Hoffman is his favorite actor, is Jeremy Strong's favorite actor. It actually reminded me a little bit of the gate that Dustin Hoffman has in Marathon Man. Yeah. But in fact, it looked like a child running away. I thought that the, um, the way in which Kendall, Shiv, and uh, Roman, their wedding night, was all very illustrative of their characters themselves. There is a degree to which... Um, those people are constantly putting themselves in and taking themselves out of the game. The, mm-hmm. the great game that that Logan just talks about, like, come play the—you know, it's all a game for I him. want you back in. Yeah. And Roman is tangentially involved, but it's like he's looking at it through a phone, you know, and when it explodes, he's only interested in how—whether or not he got burned, whether or not somebody died, and that— um, the conversations that he has with Jerry, where she's just like, my phone has rung like 40 times in the last 20 minutes. And he's just like, yeah, weird. I don't know why they haven't gotten in touch with me. (laughs) Um, It's corporate manslaughter. Yeah. Um, It's just a couple thumbs. But he doesn't ever get dirty. You know what I mean? And that's what allows him to be this princeling, above it all, everything is bullshit, I have a personality disorder Mm shitbag. And Kendall over and over again, exposes himself, and that's why he gets destroyed. I also really like the fact that Kendall is not a damaged genius. Mm -hmm. He is not, uh, you know, Jim Carroll in the Basketball Diaries. He's not even Jesse Pinkman, really, who has a lot of potential, if only he could get clean and apply himself. He's a guy who essentially can't handle the world, which is what happens to a lot of People who are addicted to drugs—it's they use it because they can't handle the world necessarily.
1: Also coddled, rich dauphins—it's it, a—it's a—it's a, it's a threat yeah, between all. Yeah, of.
0: but I think that there's probably similarities between what happens to Kendall and what happens to a person making thirty five thousand dollars a year. You know what I Fair. mean? Like I think it's—I think that there's coping mechanisms for the ordinary stresses, and you could see that both in celebration and defeat. Kendall would turn to drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to celebrate winning the bear hug and getting it across the line. Yep. And then he needed to, uh, you know, he needed to keep going down as the, the dread built that his father was going to mount a defense. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, the person who kind of knows how to play it best of all is Shiv. Shiv fucking yes. Roy. You know what I mean? Who even on her wedding night is unflappable in any different direction and is able to handle um, the fallacy of her marriage the a power move on a political candidate who's going to run for president and the, her, you know, her family's sort of self-destruction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think, by the way, shouts to newly minted watch super fan, J. Smith Cameron for uh, correcting yeah. us and saying it's Sarah Snook. Sarah Snook.
0: Jerry the Godmother reached out. The Jerry Godmother
1: reached out on Twitter. God bless. J. Smith Cameron, come on desktop. We <laughs> want you on here to talk. Um, by the way, I love that the people who are ombudswomen on this podcast for pronunciation are the great actress, J. Smith Cameron, <laughs> and the legendary casting director, Alexa Fogel.
0: I'm sure 80% of our audience is like, that's not how you say that word. But Fair. they just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they,
1: they, they reach out to tell us. Um, one of the things that I was hoping f- for from this show um, when I heard that it was announced when Adam McKay was, was a part of it— um, Obviously, more than just a part of it, it comes from his company. He's the executive producer. He directed the the pilot. Um, was that he would get into a space that I think has been a hobby horse for him in the last few years, which is that the air is different when you are have the altitude of the the, the super rich. There is a different gravity. It's possible even the gravity doesn't apply. All of the rules that we think govern us, govern us as humans, seem to be bendable mm-hmm. at a certain price point, and. I really appreciated the slow way that was revealed to us over the course of this season. In the case of Tom, who who's, you know, partly due to Matthew uh, Matthew McFadden's performance, is still deeply human, mm-hmm. um, and we see all sides of him. He's just a Midwestern guy who has flown very, very close to the sun here. And as he says to Cousin Greg earlier in the season, being rich is fucking awesome because you can put a napkin over your head and eat a baby bird at a restaurant. Right. Um You can do whatever you want is what he says when it's fun. And then his face when his (laughs) wife on their wedding night says, love is an illusion and traditional marriage is for suckers. And that's
0: just a word we use, but it includes all these different things. It's all bullshit. And he's like, no, love is love. And you see his face and you also see
1: him question it Mm -hmm. and adapt. Because when you are that far up and your compass starts spinning, you can accept it. And maybe there's new opportunity here to step on the neck of someone else. And that gets him through the night. That same idea of there being a different morality and a different gravity certainly applies to Kendall and our relationship with him. Because there has been a level of, because this is television and the people making this know it's television, you get affection for characters you spend time with, whether they are, quote, likable or not, whether they are good people or not. And the best shows don't worry about that and don't have the characters look in the mirror and ask that question. So it understood that we would kind of against our better interest, hope that Kendall gets away with it. And then actually start to feel like he's going to get away with this. He's handled it yeah, as he fairly gets, well. When he
0: goes out to find that guy and he's asking, he's trying to score, I, I was like, well, okay, so, you know, maybe he just oversleeps the next day because they had set up like, well, you know, they want us to check in at two and four and six. And I was like, okay, so maybe he's just going to like blackout and maybe he misses a little bit of it, but then he shows up or, or you know, I I don't know what I was thinking. You know what I mean? Because part of the issue with Kendall is that, and this is what I was meaning. Like he's not some like damaged genius. Who's just, it's Mm -hmm. like when he's ever confronted with the opportunity to speak for himself, to blow somebody away with his vision for their company, to be a father, to be a husband, to be any of this. It's like the, the circuitry gets overloaded. Mm -hmm. And that was the, you know, all he could muster against Logan ever was you're a fucking beast. Now, points for being succinct. That Mm -hmm. really summed it up. He is a fucking beast. But you kept waiting for that Aaron Sorkin takedown. Mm -hmm. That, like, you, and then just this bullet-pointed and completely waterproof argument against Logan Roy's leadership of the company and the family. And it's just not there. It's just not there. the, The memory is full. And it's full of drugs, probably, but it's like he's never actually had to do it. And that is fascinating to watch. I don't know how sustainable it is to mm-hmm. watch, you know, but it, it's fascinating to watch. Your point about these people who are basically so rich that they can bend reality is very well taken. It's people who look on a screen and see a rocket explode and then wipe the corners of their mouth and go back out to a party. Or people who just decide after one conversation with a senator that they're going to be the president in 2020 to keep the good seed.
1: (laughs) I mean, the the, the ego is astonishing, but also the central premise of the show is laid bare in the finale if it hadn't been before, which is, why is Logan Roy successful? What is he good at? Well, he's a monster. That's what he's good at being. He is an absolute unkillable savage. And that is not getting an MBA from Wharton, that is not having good interpersonal skills. You know, that is not good um, putting pin in things and, you know, let's let's bounce it around the room for some ideas. Mm -hmm. It's none of the jargon or corporate speak or any of the things that the people vying to take his seat uh, think are necessary to achieve that seat. You just have to be a monster. And Kendall, who, by the way, isn't good at anything really, is certainly not that. So that's the futility of this, and you know that's another sign of a good TV show or a good drama when all the characters aren't wrong. You know the things that Logan says about his children are monstrous things to say to children. Um, he's never entirely wrong about them. he understands them. You know, and one of the mo- most crushing things about the the final scene was it's not just Kendall's overwhelming shame and and grief; it is his relief. Yeah, and it is. This feeling that Logan, even as he waves to his butler over his son's shoulder, that Logan is at peace because he's not comfortable with rivals or adult children. He's comfortable with babies who need things. You know, he can, not, which isn't to say he was changing diapers. Yeah, But it, isn't, it is to yeah. say that this this baby boy needed him, and he could do
0: that. I he thought he could do those things. You talked a little bit. You mentioned the uh, three hundred and sixty degree levels of accomplishment on this show mm-hmm. from the way it's shot to the way it's set designed. I wanted to say a, sp- a special note for how they dress Kendall in that scene. Because mm-hmm. he looks like a little boy that's been dressed up for a Sunday morning breakfast at a wedding.
1: Oh my God. H- h- his, his little sweater. H- his shoulders are so narrow and He small. looks
0: like they they really, they I- accentuate how much taller Greg is than him in the line. Mm-hmm. And when the guy comes for him, um And when they bring him in with Logan, and Logan's in there with that crackling fire, like he's a fucking duke from the 19th century, and everything is for effect, right? He's got like his family members this uh, on one couch. He immediately lays it out, and you know, I I think that we can discuss the ambiguity of whether or not there was any real father son affection going on there. Mm. I think you're right in that it's there is that. Now the world has returned to its natural order. Exactly. Like, I am the lion and you are the damaged cub and you're going to go out to the desert and then you're going to come back and you're going to have some bullshit job at Waystar or whatever it is, if that happens. Um, But the tear, you know, that goes down Jeremy Strong's eye when he starts to Mm -hmm. explain the situation and he tries to say, well, uh, I didn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, And then him... You know, pulling him in and saying "You're you're my beautiful boy," you know, "You're my number one boy" or whatever, and hugging him is that's that's like a I'm the one who knocks moment. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, is. That is that is a real moment you're going to remember for years to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, fuck the Emmys on some level they're ridiculous, but but if we live in a world where we have them, Jeremy Strong and Sarah Snook and and Matthew McFadden and Brian Cox are deserving of yeah. them. Um, as
0: is Kieran Culkin for what, and Alan Rockin, yeah, for,
1: for what they for what they bring to bear here. I also just want to give credit to some of the architecture, you know, and mm-hmm. that's something that's a word that that I'm going to use when we speak to Jesse Armstrong as well, but. There's a lot of there's a lot of thoughtfulness to the way this is put together. The way he watches his daughter dance is devastating. Not only because we know of where he's been, but we also know of how impossible this is going to be for him to ever understand priorities. Because he's like all people model their behavior on their parents, and casting shadow over this entire season intentionally, I think. And I'm sure this was discussed at length in the room and in everyone who's been involved in the creation of it. The backdrop to this, remember, is um, Rupert Murdoch and his family, obviously an inspiration, um, both good and bad for the Roy family. Let's remember that Rupert Murdoch has had his sons work in his company all over the world, in Australia, in mm-hmm. New York, in Los Angeles, in Europe, building his empire, managing his empire, um, You know, basically playing them against each other. Trying the way, to pull his company closer to the center. The, yeah. the way Logan Roy has done. Yeah. And ultimately, when it became time for him to make a decision or to plan for a future generation, he fucking sold it. <laughs> He sold it rather than let his children have a say in his legacy or muddy it. And that is, I mean, I don't care about these people. Um, Although, man, if X-Men get to join the Avengers, that'd be cool. (laughs) I don't care about these people, but there is something that is Shakespearean about that, of course. And to see it playing upwards and downwards because, again— Young children in TV shows are often unforced errors, but the way that, that, that Rava and the kids show up, the role they play, the emotional care with which those scenes are written, as you talked about last week, mm-hmm. um, matter. You know, all of these people could do what um, Tom says to Shiv. We could go be scuba instructors. Yeah. We could leave. Oh, yeah. They're so rich, as Kendall says, in the car uh, on the way to Doom. Uh, they could do anything but they also can't ever leave. Yeah,
0: Kendall's whole discussion about, oh, what, are you going to fucking kidnap me? So is it going to kill me at a house with a <laughs> like a tin roof? It's
1: it? so... That's the other thing. Let's let's maybe, before we get Jesse on the phone, let's just go back to that, which is, boy, this is funny. I mean, it this was one of the Greg, funniest the episodes. Greg, the
0: motherfucking egg. Yeah.
1: Greg <laughs> on the margins. Um, the entire... Alan Ruck performance, yeah. From what he's going to do if his prostitute girlfriend can't be in the wedding photos to his commentary, <laughs> his conversation with her about running for president, where he's she's like, "I think art can change the world." He's like, "Well, yeah. Well, no. Yeah, <laughs> I could be, I could outlaw art. I could out- that's the power of the position. <laughs> I could outlaw art." And the sense that you know he presents himself as this Mr. Cool guy in the desert, you know, who's yeah. separated himself. But of course, he is more fucked than any of them in his head. Yes, the thought of losing his fortune, losing his power. They all still
0: want it. And right, because they say it's like our inheritance is tied up in stock in this company. Like this company, you want to tear it down. You want to make it this new thing. That doesn't work for us.
1: Because we have our lives and how we want to use it. And in that scene, the image is painted like a Renaissance painting right. with this background. Um, and then, you know, finally, this was also, these, these last two episodes were the ones where I realized why. By the way, this, this is this is great. This is a great show to be on HBO because all the conversation that's been happening about, you know, is when AT&T buys the network, is HBO going to be more like Netflix? Is it going to start going for quantity over quality? This is a strong argument for what HBO can do mm-hmm. on two fronts. One, this is not a show top line by movie stars. This is not a big get, um, you know, in terms of the trades, but this was cast immaculately and precisely with great care. As someone who's going through casting right now, I marvel how they nailed every minor role, including all the major roles. This is the promise but,
0: of a TV show, is that you mint your own stars. You mint
1: your own stars, and then you hold on to them. There's, yeah. It's a large regular cast, and it's a large supporting and guest cast. J. Smith Cameron, um, Arian Moyad, they're not in the main cast mm-hmm. yet, but they're not going anywhere. And also, they moved production of the show twice. It's not—this show is based in New York. They filmed an episode in New Mexico, and they filmed two episodes in a castle in England that looked like a castle in England. You can't make a show about the super rich without being able to show what super rich would look like. Yeah, Netflix could bankroll that. But sure. I do think this is an argument for what HBO can and should be doing um, in terms of, you know, th- th- this, is, this is just so precisely done. This is not done by committee.
0: I also thought that this show... Um it didn't have a mystery, which was refreshing. Mm, I think that mm-hmm. like we've probably become a little bit dependent on mysteries that, in our point. in our television watching. Whether even if the mystery is as will they or won't they uh, catch this person as like a pursuit, you know, in well, like sec, I'm or something. Just
1: rewriting Briar Patch while you talk. <laughs>
0: um, and I think that this show showed what you could do if you really clearly and honestly looked at characters rather than either lionized them or excoriated them. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that really dominates the way we talk about television, the way we talk about art these days, is the likability of the characters, whether or not you um, approve of their behavior morally. And what it really sort of presses you is that if you can see these people who are objectively... Bad for the world. Mm-hmm. They're not, there's not a single person in that group who is actually giving back to the planet in a <laughs> significant way, regardless of whatever charitable foundations they bankroll. Even the the person who you're like, I'm kind of pulling for Kendall, it's not like he's trying to save people's jobs or f- create new ones. He's trying to be a tech bro shitbag. Like, that's his dream is to be like, when they're like, what are you trying to do here? He's like, I want to be new. I want to do new stuff and make new... Like, he and doesn't even know. He wants to He's shut down newspapers like, yeah. and
1: local news stations. And he and wants to, like, p- and pivot put to video.
0: in the, like, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. This dude wants to pivot to video. Exactly. So, it tested viewers. It tested us. It asked us open your mind a little bit, try to think in not-so-binary terms of I like this person or this person is the worst, and really pursue it. It kind of reminded me of Breaking Bad in that way. Mm -hmm. Although Breaking Bad spent a lot more time with the people who wound up being the villains as heroes. You know what I mean? I feel like you were built up. It's like Kendall didn't have a tumor. You know, Kendall (laughs) didn't have to save his family, like, his family home. And he didn't have to, like, provide for a working mother... And his son. It's like he he's. This is just already like bullshit for him.
1: No, the the, the details are actually the, the character learning details actually often go in the other direction, which is to say, on a much more basic show, um, the the lone interaction between Logan Roy and the waiter would not have been played the way it was the waiter maybe would have tried to rob him or said something rude to him right. or been a you know 99%er or something in fact he was just a normal person doing his job who poked the dragon at the wrong time and the dragon breathed fire on him and changed his um uh, changed his his itinerary and changed his life yeah that created the reasoning on some level for why Logan is so dismissive of justice for this guy because Logan already hated this guy but the point is Logan hates everyone it doesn't matter these people don't matter and it also is if you can
0: bend reality you can like it's what Logan says to him it's like this can be a detail that gets forgotten on a wedding night or it can change your life
1: and he says to as he says to the head of the service or whatever at at the home at the castle I never want to see that person again yeah he deep sixes him from reality.
0: Right. He gets a sweetener. Like kid is like, I'm kind of like, I got well paid to be like, like eradicated from this business basically. Yeah. I mean,
1: the lesson is never bring horse tranquilizer (laughs) to work with you. I just feel like that's never going to end well. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled. I preach Chris. I want to thank you, my podcast partner and friend for urging me to stick with the show. Yeah, man. it, It feels really great to be excited about something and to be impressed by something. And I really like your point also about, Um, how refreshing the show can be, even though it's built, obviously, on the bones of other things. For me, it's not just that there's no mystery. It's that this is not genre, and it is not pre-existing IP. And it's adult, and it's smart. and, uh, And crucially, it's funny.
0: Yes. All right, let's talk to the person who made it all those things, Jesse Armstrong. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team. SeatGeek will help you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed, and nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have SeatGeek on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way. I found a shop for tickets I can be anywhere and with just a few taps I can instantly find seats I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to the LAFC game uh, in a couple of weeks it's really awesome to use I love going to these soccer matches and SeatGeek is how I I get my tickets if you're in LA please check out LAFC SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals and to get you the most bang for your buck SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget plus every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater best of all our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code watch today that's promo code watch for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase SeatGeek right seat right now right from your phone Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sharp Objects. When a young girl disappears from rural Wind Gap, Missouri, reporter Camille Preaker is sent to investigate whether the case is linked to an unsolved murder. From the author of Gone Girl, the producer of Get Out, and the director of Big Little Lies comes HBO's limited series Sharp Objects, based on the novel by Gillian Flynn. Amy Adams stars as reporter Camille Preaker, whose proximity to the investigation, her chilly mother and mysterious half-sister, bring her own scars to the surface. Held as a spellbinding, addictive immersion into this dark small town mystery by IndieWire, and the most captivating show of the summer by Time Sharp Objects also features Patricia Clarkson, Chris Bessina, and Eliza Scanlon. See new episodes every Sunday at nine and catch up on HBO Now. Okay, so Chris and I are now extremely
1: excited. To be joined on the phone from London, maybe just crouched outside of the writer's room. We don't even know the details with the creator and showrunner of Succession. We are finally closing the circuit. <laughs> Jesse Armstrong, welcome.
2: Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I've just left the writers' room, and um, they're all going for an Indian meal, so uh, I'm excited to go and join them. Oh,
1: good. I hope we haven't cost you the chance for a vindaloo or something. We, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep this as brief as possible.
2: Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be heading through all the poppadoms and I'm going to be I'm going to be a few poppadoms down. But I'm willing to do this because I like to talk about art.
1: <laughs> well, we will we will elevate our conversation to be worthy of the sacrifice. Um, congratulations, first of all, on a tremendous first season of television. We obviously are in rapture by it, and I know a lot of our listeners are as well.
2: Thank you very much. I'm really, you know, it's a um, interesting tone. I think it uh, uh, has its challenges for people to, to get to grips with what, you know, the, the, the tone that we went for and the, the people that we portray, but um, uh, we felt that there was interesting stuff in there, so I'm glad you've responded to it.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the potential difficulty and hazards here. Um, we do want to talk about the finale while we have you on the phone, but since we do have you, we wanted to go back a little bit further and, and talk to you about how you found your way into this project. I think the question that I'm sure you wrestled with um, and are still wrestling with, how to make a compelling drama about people A, who can do anything, and B, people who are widely loathed by I don't know, 99% of the world, particularly at this moment. Um, yeah. How did you choose to find your way in? What was interesting to you? And then how did you lay down your stakes in 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 with this first season, the type of story you wanted to
2: tell? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think part of it was I totally ignored some of that. Like, I don't think I realized that um, people would have a bump or could have a bump around the pizza, around these kind of characters, I, I think maybe, you know, the shows I like watching are about interesting people and I, I'm not, and it may be a quirk of character. I'm not super personally, I don't think, judgmental. I mean, I make a judgment on whether who I um, find appealing or not, but I, as a viewer, I don't think need, you know, I don't feel like it's sports and I need someone to get behind. Um, I think other people have a different, a different take on that. So, So part of that may just be a deficiency of me as a writer. You know, the other stuff I've written has been, you know, some of it has been a sitcom and more overtly comic. And maybe um, you don't have the same requirements as uh, in an hour-long piece. Anyway, I don't know why I don't care too much about that, but I don't. And I hope that other people feel similarly that they want to, see interesting people um, doing, to the, to the other point um, you raised, you know, doing interesting stuff. And, and and that's what I feel the show is about. It's is, is about really interesting stuff, like why is the world the way it is? Um, you know, politics, culture, media come into that. And this show is a bit about politics and culture, but very much about the media and the, and the climate created by the big figures we're
0: surrounded by. Jesse, I wanted to ask you specifically about how you paced the season and structured the season uh, and the episodes themselves as well. But after watching the finale, I couldn't help but think about maybe there being this overarching spine to the show was the relationship between Logan and Kendall and specifically almost the way that neither one of them could ever have not only power— like. But also health, even at the same time as Logan gets stronger throughout the season, recovering from his stroke and then comes back. It's the it augers the sort of decline of Kendall uh, around around the Austerlitz episode. Could you talk to us a little yeah. bit about that central relationship and how you structured the season around it?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think I can. Um, as I as I talk, we'll find out whether the words have any use. Yeah, I guess is, we, we were we were not unaware of a symphonic kind of thing. Of exactly as you put your finger on it, and, and it's never that much fun as a as a sort of showrunner creative person to try and decode your own stuff. So there's certain bits that, in a way, I don't want to talk about because I don't want to think about too much but I think it is true to say we're not we weren't unaware of exactly what you suggest which is that there's something slightly mysterious and unnerving about the way that there's only so much cake and it gets distributed in this season between those primarily between those two obviously it's a it is an ensemble show so and and I think you will feel that there are other people around who want a slice of the cake but but it feels like a pretty zero-sum game and I think you know what you've identified is true
1: I think Roman just wants the icing I may be
2: wrong about that <laughs> yeah he's not he's not gonna help you with the uh, yeah with the dry fruit cake he's going about the icing <laughs> I think um, one of the Chris
1: and I talk about this often on the podcast, one of the great joys of television shows, especially when they're getting started, is the way um, a show with a very uh, strong sense of identity and tone will teach you how to watch it and what to appreciate it and what to look for and how to understand it. Uh, succession was absolutely fits that category. Um, I did wonder, though, if you went through a process of finding your way as the audience did. Because um, I'll cop to being a, a, a slow adoptee of the show. It wasn't really until midway through the season that I realized, oh, wait, I'm completely compelled and, and fascinated by the show. I, I, I had felt that I was on a, more of a fence prior to that. Um, but I think, in my experience watching it, there was a palpable sense of. Uh, you and your writers gaining more confidence in who these people were, certainly in the actors understanding who their characters would be and could be culminating in a moment that I just thought was so small and so perfect and representative of the synchronicity you all seemed to achieve, which was Roman watching the rocket launch in the bathroom wordlessly washing his hands and walking out of it. It, it just seemed like he under, Kieran understood it, you understood it in your script, the director, everyone seemed to get how he would behave and, and you showed it to us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know on that one. It, it, I think it could be, it could um, smack of arrogance to suggest this, but I feel a bit like we did, I think we did know and I'd be curious. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty open to criticism and reassessing my and thinking about it in different ways relatively open he claims but um i i I think i am and i would be curious if you went back and looked at the first episodes whether you know me and my writing partner sam used to laugh about um mainly when we saw the reception to other people's shows how critics would often say oh the writers are really getting to know the characters by episodes you know five or six and you thought no usually the writer's do know these characters? You, you, the audience are, are discovering them, and, and we all know that feeling. I don't, I don't think, I don't disdain that because I know my, you know, how the shows that I've watched, and you're like, oh, I kind of, uh, I, I, I'm warming to these people, or I'm, or I'm discovering what there is to to enjoy, and I and I think sometimes one reimposes what one's own feeling on the on the on the on the on the people behind the show so i may be wrong but but the but i think most of that stuff is there earlier in the season. That's my I, that's my feeling, I, but you I, know, well, I think, trust, trust the tale, not the teller.
1: I think you might be right, and I even said that last week on the show, that I would like to revisit and to see if, now that I understand fully and I'm invested, if I would watch them, if they would play differently for me. I think you may be right. I, I'm also wondering if maybe you're just so peckish for the Indian food we're denying you that, that, <laughs> that you want to be disagreeable. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's he's one, got, he's
0: yeah. just seeing non dancing for be, his I'm,
2: eyes. It's one or the other. I could become more and more arrogant and, and, and difficult to deal with the longer this goes on. So let's, yeah, you better give me some softball later on.
1: I'm going to pivot to praise after the, after Chris's next question. I promise.
0: <laughs> Jesse, I wanted to specifically ask about Jeremy Strong uh, because he's somebody that uh, early on in the season, I, was, I just felt like I recognized a very special performance, a very unique character. Um, Andy and I just spent half an hour talking about the finale, and one of the things that i thought was remarkable is that um you know i think we're conditioned to expect kendall to get his la- finally get a word in you know he's been confronted by logan over the course of this season and the only thing that he can really muster is you're a fucking beast and even the way that jeremy strong plays that the way you can wa- see him searching for that moment and not being able to come up with it and then the thing that happens afterwards the the sort of, uh the con- not the consequences of that moment but the the what happens afterwards is so fascinating and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about his specific performance throughout the season.
2: Well, yeah, I have unlimited time and respect for his performance. It's always a bit uh, a bit boring hearing people just praise other people they've worked for because it just feels like I don't get to uh, most people don't get to praise their co-workers. Not in the media (laughs) as much as uh, writers and and, and directors do. So, yeah, I, 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 I guess... I guess what I would like to say is something thrillingly um, incisive about how particularly brilliant he is, but I feel like I'm just going to gush the kind of oh, "we had such a nice time on the shoot" uh, kind of bullshit that you can get when people talk about what a nice time they've had on the shoot. So what, uh, I guess I guess he's super committed. He's like uh, he's intellectually engaged with the material. He knew he knew everything that this guy would know he'd read all the books. He'd been to lots of the places. Uh, he was, you know, somewhat method in terms of his keeping the appropriate distance from other cast members and even writers and myself in terms of wanting to fully inhabit the, the role. And so, yeah, you know, um, uh, I, I was, I was, he, he's an incredibly smart and, uh, brilliant actor. So, so yeah, he, 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 he in, in moments like you say, with the, you know, when he, when he has that sort of element of confrontation with it, with his dad, I think, uh, uh hopefully we, did, we gave him good, good ammunition on the page, but like with all really good performances, he's, he's, you know, there's,
0: he, there's an iceberg of, of his work, um, Below the surface. Yeah, because he can't articulate, you know, throughout the, throughout the season, but really in this final episode, the, that incredible walk he does in the beginning once he gets the bear hug letter, the run back from the yeah. car crash, the confrontation, and then the sort of coming to Logan as a son to a father at the end. You know, he's not doing a lot of the talking. He's processing, but Jeremy's such like a elaborate performer. You can kind of see him running all these emotions just in his eyes. It's remarkable.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. You just t- you turn the camera on. For that stuff, and just and if it's there, you get it, which is when it's amazing if it is there.
1: I wanted to talk to you, Jesse, a little bit about um, how you like to work with your writers, how you build the architecture of these episodes, because they are so expertly constructed. And I, I, am sure many of our listeners know, um, although some might not, that you've also you've written in, for many shows in, in in different genres and styles. You wrote one of the finest episodes of Black Mirror, an entire history of you. Uh, you've worked with Armando Iannucci at length. You've worked on Peep Show and Thick of It. Um, so comedy, drama, sci-fi, um, and now this amazing hybrid of everything, although with the rocket explosion, I guess there's no sci-fi as of yet. Anyway, (laughs) but just in terms of constructing the episodes, because I think about an episode like Austerlitz, which until the finale, I think was my favorite of the season. Um, you have this incredible ensemble. You put them in tight, very specific circumstances, and yet you find time for every character and every pairing to have value. Every scene adds something, whether it is information, whether it's exposition, or more more often it's just character and humor. Um, I'm thinking of the great scene between Marsha and Willa, characters who are not necessarily mm. in the starting five, yet are essential to our understanding and our enjoyment of the show.
2: Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. And we do do a lot of hard work, you know, like a lot of writers' rooms. We we spend a lot of time together Breaking the stories that my fellow writers are incredibly talented. I've got a really extraordinary group, and that lit, um was written by Lucy Preble. So uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the um, credit is just down to me being around really talented people who then write really great episodes, and and, and we've helped to do the create the the shape of the plot together. And I guess that, you know, we've I've just come out of, um, the end of the first part of the process of doing season two. And yeah, the thing that strikes me is it's, it's, um, and this goes for the season and the episodes of, of that continual, it's just a continual kind of, um, respiration of like keeping it big, honing it down, getting, making sure you think big, coming down to the details, remembering you can throw it all away, um, but what? How's this scene going to work? You know, what's the art? What are we saying about this character, this world, and what um, very specific physical or emotional beat are we enjoying? And in, in the moment, so so that's that's the heart of the how it feels. I think in a, in a in a in a writing room that's working well. You'd like let's keep all the possibilities open, but let's make sure we know exactly how they're walking down the corridor. You know, um, and 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 to make sure that you have a propulsive, interesting plot in the episode. But just as you say, that often the moments you kind of remember for from one's favourite shows are not necessarily the most propulsive kind of plot beats. There that... They're the, they're the instructive um, character moments that you, that hit home partly because they you know have that odd relationship that life does that they don't really fit or they're the opposite of what you thought would happen. So that's 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 how it feels. Is 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 that is that duality of trying to keep it open and, and honing honing in the whole time?
1: Tying tying that question into the finale, um, obviously, I think we have Alan Ruck's Hall of Fame reel for when he goes to, to Cooperstown, <laughs> but. Just the, the turn where Connor, who is, so, you know, we're at the point with these characters in just a short season where we're excited for each of them to, to, to take a turn, to show up on camera, to have something to say, particularly to party. And you have so many great parties in this season. Um, Connor suddenly deciding to run for president on a whim and then having his platform be what it is. Um, does that emerge from... A larger conversation you've had about the character and where his head might be, or does that come purely from the excitement of being in a room and pitching ideas and wondering where his journey is that episode and knowing what you have in Alan Ruck and his performance?
2: A mixture of both. I mean uh, that wasn't I mean, I couldn't imagine a version where um I guess I wrote that episode up where I just threw that in and then uh, had been I, you know I hope this lands, and uh, another writer I might to do that in another episode. But with that, that was a plot line that we've we've been discussing for a long time. You know, it always it always um amused us and felt, although it's quite um big, it felt like, you know, it, the idea of somebody who's really done nothing wanting to do the biggest job, um, is amusing, has some resonances maybe in uh, American life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so that was that was a um that 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 one was actually the sort of plot line that um was probably up on our whiteboard all the way through we were when we were like desperate to do, and uh, it was like well we it feels like it's it just about fits in here um so so yeah it's uh, that's 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 not not just a casual throwaway that's that's something we always wanted to get in
0: I wanted to ask you you obviously aren't you know all going to share what's going to happen in season two, but I'm more curious about um this first season was obviously the feeding frenzy that happens when the great lion of this family is felled for at least the time, the time being, at least for the first uh, sort of two thirds of the season or half of the season. Is and uh-huh. and I really enjoyed how each episode, you know, kind of felt like these people were imprisoned with with one another, whether it was in New Mexico or at a wedding or in a, a you know a holiday dinner. It just they were brought together and were almost inexpertly you know, drawn to one another and yet repelled by one another at the same time. And I was curious whether or not there are structural tenets that you want to transport over from the first season to the second season. Are we going to continue to see these people in these gathering points or is there a little bit more of a spreading out happening? If you could share anything about the second season.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, one kind of big thing I always knew was, I think when I pitched it to HBI I said like every episode will be a special, you know, it'll always be a thing. Um, I guess you know lots of shows hope for that feeling, but it's reflected in the fact that it's a family, and it's fun for us to do birth, death, marriages, these things which bring them together. And I think we would be foolish to discard, you know, that that thing you get, you know, from 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 the proximity. So it, it's it, it's then fun to to take some characters off and revealing and truthful to have to have them go and do other stuff. But I'd be surprised if we didn't focus on family gatherings, corporate gatherings, which are also, you know, happily or unhappily, happily for us, but unhappily for the characters, also family gatherings. So, yeah, I think we'll continue um, having those kind of events.
1: Finally, um, I'm kicking myself that in the time we had with you, I didn't give a special mention or question based around the performance of Sarah Snook, who's just incredible as Siobhan, um, possibly my favorite character, but I... I have to say, as much as I am enjoying the dynamic between her and Tom, I think everyone listening understands that the real uh, couple to, to to ship on this show is Tom and Cousin Greg. Um, can, <laughs> get, can can you talk about the uh, the origins of the of, of that magical pair? Uh, the potential future of that couple, and just the the chemistry. Was it there from that first table read, or or, or did it build over time? And
0: will you give the viewers the Fly Guys spinoff that they're looking for in the Succession Expanded Universe? Exactly.
2: A web series, maybe. (laughs) We did cut away to the Fly Guys. We had some material on the cutting floor where we cut away to the Fly Guys and saw what they were up to in their diner, but um, we, we never it never quite it never quite made the cut. Um, Tom and Greg, I think they're. I think um, the actors uh, did developed a, a, a fondness for that relationship uh, through the season, which was fun to see happen. I think um, Matthew and Nick kind of enjoyed the way they interrelated. They were, I think, they were the most likely to, um, uh, you say corpse as well, don't you, in the US for when for when someone unintended, uh, it lasts without meaning to on set. Do you say corpse?
0: I don't think so. No, I,
1: th-
2: I think we say breaks. We, we say that's, breaks, that's, yeah. That's, break, yeah, that's it. So they would be the most, they would be the most likely to break. Um, uh, and of, I think that was kind of uh, when I wrote the pilot, I don't think I saw, I don't think I knew that, that that relationship was going to necessarily, they have that moment together. They have a little moment on the, on a, on a baseball field where, where Tom is kind of insinuating and weird. And, 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 I, and I guess it's it the, um I don't know if I was aware of this when I wrote a bit, but I guess the, the, the vibe is, of that is when you, a new kid, sees another new kid and doesn't like it, you know, it's the sort of narcissism of small difference of like, hey, look, I think this family can only take one kind of um, desperate outsider and so it gets, gets filtered in this kind of nasty uh, bullying, maybe it's friendly kind of way and um, and I think once we did the right the room, we all um, hooked on to that as a, as a a thread that we could
1: follow, and um, just finally now, you're as you said, you, you've just stepped out of the writers' room. You're about to be released by us towards your your your, your dinner. Um, this does feel a little bit cruel, almost holding you. But uh, I did have to ask if, if you could relate to your mindset right now as you've just begun the process of season two. You're you're with the writers to Kendall's arc during the season. Are you? Making a pitch to dust in your mind? <laughs> are you working out to age inappropriate hip hop? Are you are you just emerged from a swamp where you've killed somebody? <laughs> you know, feel free to find your own moment. But I'm just curious if we could have some insight into where you are as the showrunner of this, oh, of this series. Oh god, yeah, that's that's
2: that's a very cruel question, actually, because. <laughs> Because you know, as any writer, you guys will know you 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 don't really know who you are. You think right. you you keep on thinking you're taking over the company, and then you look back and you realise that you were um, that you were pitching pitching to some uh, to a to a startup who had no interest in you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it feels it feels good right now, but I'm very I'm, I'll be very um, aware that when I look back next week, I may have seen myself driving through New York, um, singing along to music that was only playing in my ears and making a fool of myself. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a long road. Well, Jesse, we're excited to, to walk it with you. Um, thank you so
1: much for taking the time. Thank you for a tremendous season. And please enjoy a mango Lessie on us.
0: Yeah! Congratulations, it was an incredible, <laughs> incredible achievement.
2: Thank you. That's really kind, gents. I'm going to go and have three nan breads on your on your time. <laughs> you deserve it. Take, Take care, care, man. Bye. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot for
0: Thank you so much for listening. That was Jesse Armstrong. Uh, th- thank you so much to him for coming on, showrunner and creator of Succession. It's been a blast talking about this show this season. I can't wait till season two. Andy, Chris, what has the belt now? Uh, I I think until further notice, it's just Roman watching the rocket launch.
1: <laughs> and then washing his hands and walking, walking away. Uh, congratulations on your corporate merger and your wedding and your bear hug, Bransky. Stay
0: out of the pond, Branskys We did it. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The Venture Brothers, a brand new season of the critically acclaimed animated series The Venture Brothers is almost here. Watch Hank Dean, Brock Rusty, and the rest of Team Venture attempt to save their frozen butts from the icy chill of organized villainy. The Venture Brothers, new episodes Sunday at midnight on Adult Swim, all in the name of super science. Go Team Venture. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sharp Objects from the author of Gone Girl, the producer of Get Out, and the director of Big Little Lies comes to HBO limited series Sharp Objects. Amy Adams stars as a troubled reporter who returns to her hometown to investigate the murders of two young girls. Hailed as a spellbinding, addictive immersion into a dark small-town mystery by IndieWire, you can watch Sharp Objects Sundays at 9 p.m. and catch up on HBO Now.